we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the VPN that's rated number one by CNET, Wired, and countless others. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash gold right now, you can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. As expected, earlier today, the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged at zero, where they will remain for the foreseeable future, although some on the FOMC did indicate that they saw some increase in interest rates coming as soon as 2023. Now, one thing that the Federal Reserve did not indicate was a expansion of its current QE program. It did indicate that it will continue to monetize debt at the rate that it has been monetizing it. Although in the press conference that followed the official announcement, Powell did open the door to the possibility that the Fed would at some point expand its asset purchase program, both in the maturity Uh, of the assets that it's buying and in the quantity, which of course means that it is going to do it. It's just a question of when, and it doesn't even take an admission from the Fed to know that the Fed is ultimately going to be increasing the size of its asset purchases, especially when the Fed is actually cheerleading the congressional movement towards greater fiscal stimulus. All of that fiscal stimulus 
is going to result in much larger budget deficits. And the only way to prevent those budget deficits from forcing interest rates higher would be for the Fed to accommodate those deficits by monetizing them, which in and of itself means that the size of the asset purchase program is going to have to expand to accommodate the additional debt that is being sold to finance the stimulus. In fact, earlier this morning, before we got the FOMC announcement, we did get rumors that Congress is getting close to finishing a $900 billion stimulus package, which should be passed before the end of the year. What will not be included in the stimulus package is direct aid to the states. That's probably going to happen next year. Also, there isn't going to be any kind of blanket liability protection for businesses to protect them from being sued uh, from employees or customers that may contract COVID, you know, despite their uh, best efforts to uh, mitigate uh, the potential exposure. What the uh, stimulus will include is checks that will be mailed directly to the public from the government, very popular with voters, also probably more PPP money. In fact, yesterday I was watching on CNBC, they brought out the big guns, Warren Buffett, who was basically begging, crying almost on live television for Congress to come to the aid of small businesses, that small businesses need the money. And because they need the money, uh, Congress has to step up, that it's like a war, that it's not their fault. Uh, and therefore, the government needs to step in. He also compared it to eminent domain. Uh, Buffett said that, look, if the U.S. government takes your property, right, if they, for the public good, if they take a piece of property, you know, they want to build a railroad and your property happens to be where they want the tracks to go through and they take your land, they give you compensation, which, you know, the law requires, Constitution requires. If the government takes your property, they have to pay you fair market value. They just can't take it from you. And so what Buffett is saying is if the government is going to really take away your business by ordering you to close your business, you can't be open, and now you've lost your livelihood, that people are entitled to compensation. And, you know, I am very sympathetic to that perspective. I think if the government is ordering you to shut your business, then maybe the government should compensate you for that economic loss, except the government doesn't actually have any money. The government then would have to take the money from other taxpayers and then give that money to the business owners whose livelihood has been sacrificed for the public good. And I would be in full support of that, but not in the manner that Warren Buffett uh, wants. Buffett wants the federal government to bail out these businesses, but it's not the federal government that ordered all these businesses to close. These orders came from local governments, from municipal governments, city governments, state governments. That's where uh, business owners are being deprived of their property. And so it's on that level that the taxpayer should be on the hook. See, Buffett just wants the Federal Reserve to print money to bail out all these businesses. I don't want that. Plus, that also creates a moral hazard. If a state government wants to force a restaurant owner to shut his restaurant, then that state government should be prepared to tax its citizens to compensate that business owner for the lost revenue. Now, of course, going forward, 
I mean, if this is going to be the new way that we handle these type of healthcare emergencies, well, then anybody who wants to go into the restaurant business is forewarned. I think this kind of took a lot of people by surprise that the governments would do this. But now that we know this, I would say anybody who goes into the restaurant business now, they better charge high enough prices so that they can set aside a rainy day fund in case they got to shut down for six months or a year because of another pandemic, right? That should be a risk that a business owner accepts by going into a particular business, right? Obviously, not all businesses are vulnerable to this type of risk. Like, obviously, if, um, you know, you, you, you open up a ski resort, right? What's the risk there? Well, maybe you don't get any snow and now you don't get any, any skiers. And so you have to have money set aside in case you don't get any snow one season and, and, and your business is down. There are a lot of businesses that have risks that are unique to those businesses. And anybody who enters that business obviously accepts that risk. Now, I think a lot of people had no idea when they opened up a gym uh, or a restaurant that they were taking on this kind of risk. I think this took a lot of people by surprise. And so the idea that business owners who were surprised by these actions and didn't have a chance to prepare for them, they didn't willingly accept these risks or didn't think they were uh, exposing themselves to these kind of risks when, when, when they went into business. There is an argument that they should be compensated, but they should be compensated from the governments that are forcing them to shut down. And the taxpayers in those jurisdictions should have to pay for it. And of course, if we did this, and I argued this from the beginning, that would force local politicians to do a real cost-benefit analysis of their decisions. And if they knew that they were going to have to compensate all these business owners Uh, for their lost revenue, and if they knew that the federal government wasn't going to be there to backstop their economies and take care of the people that they put out of work, they would make very different decisions. But because everybody believes that the cost is going to be paid by somebody else, well, that influences uh, the cost-benefit analysis because you get all the benefits of, you know, of health, at least the benefits that you think are there, without any of the costs. You just push the costs on to somebody else. But of course, the costs are going to be borne by the entire country because of the destruction in the value of the U.S. dollar. In fact, the dollar continues to weaken. Earlier this morning, even before uh, the FOMC announcement came out, the dollar hit a fresh low, at least the dollar index, since April of 2018. In fact, we came close to breaking below 90 you know, an 89 handle on the dollar index. We got to about 90.12 or 90.14, something like that. The euro was trading above 122. Now we are less than 3% above a six-year low in the U.S. dollar index. So if we fall 3%, we will take out the low from December of 2014. And I think there is a very, very good chance that we will take that low out before the end of this year. And that will set the dollar up, I think, for a dramatic decline in 2021. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the dollar hit a new all-time record low, the dollar index anyway, in 2021. And if we don't get there in 2021, I think we'll get there in 2022. The low on the dollar index is just below 71, if you're not sure. And that happened back in March of 2008. 
Then we got a huge rally in the dollar after the 08 financial crisis. Then when the Fed launched quantitative easing, the dollar surrendered most of those gains, but it didn't make a new low. The dollar index held its old low, and that's what ignited the huge rally where the dollar index got as high as I think maybe 105 or something like that uh, was around the peak. Uh, This year, uh, during COVID, we got up around 103 and change, didn't take out that high. I think the high was in 2018 or something like that. Couldn't take out that high. And now we've rolled over. I think the bull market in the dollar is over, or really it's a cyclical bull in a secular bear market that's been ongoing for a long time. But now we are back in a bear market. And I think this time we're going to take out the 2008 low uh, and go much lower. And that's when the crisis is going to start. It's going to be when the dollar is at a new low and keeps on falling. Now, while the dollar was falling, gold prices were rising. Gold was up about 11 bucks today. We're back at 1865. But when it comes to metals, this time it was silver that was shining brighter. It was up almost 90 cents on the day. Very, very strong day for silver. Back above $25 an ounce. We're $25.34. So the silver stocks really had a lot of uh, a power today. I think a much bigger move is building in the silver market. As I've been saying, both metals are headed a lot higher, but so are industrial metals, copper, nickel, zinc, you name it. Uh, if the Fed can't print it, uh, it's going to go up in price. That is really what's going on. In fact, I was reading more and more articles about how 2021 was going to be bearish for gold. And the argument for the gold bears was that we're going to have all this economic growth in 2021. And that strong economic growth is what's going to hurt gold. Well, we're not going to have strong economic growth. Even the Federal Reserve is forecasting growth of just over 4% in 2021, which may seem strong relative to the sub 3% Uh, growth rates that we've had every year for the past couple of decades. But if you compare it to what happened this year, if you really believe we're going to have a comeback uh, in 2021, it should be a lot stronger than, you know, 4%. But I think most of that is going to be inflation. It's not going to be real economic growth. It's going to be inflation that is going to be ruling uh, the day, uh, not economic growth. And inflation is exactly what gold needs to have an even bigger bull market. The problem is so few people actually understand inflation, especially Jerome Powell. And I am going to talk about Jerome Powell's lack of understanding of inflation, particularly as it relates to the 1970s, a little later on the podcast when I go over what he said in his uh, press conference. But of course, I've got to touch on uh, Bitcoin because Bitcoin actually outshined both gold and silver today, trading for the first time in its history above 20,000. You know, we had made new highs, but we never actually took out the 20,000 level. And today we took it out with a vengeance. In fact, as I am recording this podcast, 21,300-ish is the current price. In fact, this is about the highest I've seen. Who knows where it's going to be trading by the time anybody listens to this podcast. I mean, now that we've taken out 20,000, you know, I thought for a while that the bubble had peaked and that we wouldn't take out 20,000. Clearly, that's not the case. The bubble is gonna get bigger than I thought. How much bigger 
remains to be seen. But even though I may have been wrong about how big the bubble would get in thinking that 20,000 was the top, I do not believe that I am wrong on the ultimate description of the market as a bubble or of my belief that eventually, no matter how big this bubble gets, it will pop and the air is going to come out and there will be tremendous losses uh, for anybody who has bet on it. In fact, today's catalyst for this buy was not just the fact that MicroStrategies has raised $650 million that it plans to put into Bitcoin, uh, but there was news of another major hedge fund uh, that has quietly accumulated a significant stake in Bitcoin and may put up to a billion dollars in the cryptocurrency at some point in the future. Whether or not the additional buying will ever take place, nobody knows. But what we do know is it is fueling the mania that is going on right now because what the Bitcoin community is saying is, aha, this is it. These institutions that are now buying, this is what we've been saying. This is just the tip of a huge iceberg. All the institutions are going to follow. Everybody is going to buy Bitcoin. The whole world is going to buy Bitcoin. Every major hedge fund, every pension fund, every endowment, every institution, everybody is coming in. This is just the beginning. The floodgates are open. It's Bitcoin to the moon. We're going to a million. And so this is what's generating uh, this latest rise. I don't believe it for a moment. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online. And it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web. And in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh. 
The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I don't think these few hedge funds that are buying, and maybe there'll be a few more that are dumb enough to do this. I don't think this is going to be the beginning of a new trend. I think this is the end of an old trend. Maybe this is the capitulation where some of these hedge funds are getting in. I mean, they're now, they're so tempted by the gains of the past that they want to get in on them. And in fact, maybe some of these hedge funds think that by getting in on them, they can help push the price even higher. They can pump it up and then dump out of it, that they can come in. Because remember, hedge funds are not long-term hodlers, right? These guys are traders. They're just they're just in it for a quick buck. They're, these guys are not necessarily, you know, trying to prove a point or philosophically just, you know, trying to be anti-Fed or anti-anything. They're just trying to get their two and 20. And some of these guys may believe that their own entrance into the market can help generate new buying which would enable them to get out. I don't know. Uh, maybe some of them do plan on holding for a longer period of time. Maybe they're just as fooled as some of the other people who actually think they found new gold. They don't realize that it's fool's gold. Well, I think the fools are going to uh, find this out soon enough. Uh, I don't buy any of these arguments. The arguments that I'm hearing today uh, from these institutions are no better than the arguments I've heard over the last several years uh, from individuals who have been involved. The only thing that's changed is the price. Yes, the price is higher, but a higher price only proves that more fools have been attracted uh, into the market and that a lot of other fools are reluctant to sell. So if you have a limited supply of something, and more people try to buy, and the people that own don't want to sell, yes, of course, the price can go up. But the price can't go up forever. Eventually, the people who have been buying are going to want out. There's not going to be new buyers behind them to come in, and the whole thing is going to implode, and it could happen at any time. Uh, The risk is tremendous, and it will come without warning. And the vast majority of people will get wiped out. So, you know, if, if, if this is the type of game that you want to play, you can play it. I wouldn't want to play it with my money or any money entrusted with me. I would much rather invest in real gold. And actually, that's not even an investment. I look at gold as a store of value. Uh, my investments are in stocks. A lot of the stocks that I own did extremely well today. A lot of the value stocks that I own and my clients own had very, very strong days. Uh, metal stocks, those are more speculative. The silver stocks, I mean, if you want to speculate, I am much more comfortable buying mining stocks than I would be in Bitcoin. I think those gains are sustainable. I don't think it's a bubble. I think we're early in a bull market. I can sleep soundly uh, in the investments that I have. I would be tossing and turning all night if I tried to put any significant amount of money into Bitcoin. The people who can sleep soundly with Bitcoin are only sleeping soundly because they don't understand what they own they understood it, they wouldn't own it. Oh, by the way, I did want to mention that I now have over 400,000 subscribers to my YouTube channel. I just passed that milestone yesterday. So I want to especially thank everybody who has subscribed. If you're listening to my podcast now and you're not a subscriber, what are you waiting for? Subscribe. 
but also tell your friends. Get them to subscribe. Next stop, 500,000, one half a million subscribers. I hope I can get there early in the new year. Of course, my real goal is to get to a million. I don't know how long that's going to take, but obviously if everybody who subscribes now convinced two friends to subscribe, I'd be over a million. So I know everybody's got at least two buddies uh, that you could turn on to the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Uh, And so subscribe. And if you're listening on Shift Radio or any of the places where we have a podcast and you're not listening on YouTube, you can still go to my YouTube channel and subscribe and help build those numbers. And also, don't forget, while you're subscribing to my podcast, make sure and give it the thumbs up uh, that you like it and maybe leave a comment. You know, earlier this year, more than 100 Twitter users got their accounts hacked. Passwords, email addresses, phone numbers, more than that. And these are high-profile users. Joe Biden, Elon Musk, Kanye West. These kinds of attacks are getting more and more frequent and more severe. And it's not just Twitter. Facebook, eBay, Uber, Adobe, Yahoo have all leaked data such as passwords, credit card information, driver's license. Billions of dollars have been lost. Look, if someone like Joe Biden can get hacked, Anybody can get hacked, and that's why I use ExpressVPN to safeguard my personal data. ExpressVPN is an app that funnels your data through a secure encrypted tunnel so that no matter what device you use, you can have peace of mind every time you're online. The app connects with just one click, it's lightning fast, and the best part is ExpressVPN works on up to five devices simultaneously, so you and your whole family can stay protected. If a breach can happen to powerful individuals, it can happen to you. So protect yourself with ExpressVPN, the number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, and countless others. Another benefit, particularly for somebody like me, I'm out in Puerto Rico. There's a lot of content that is restricted from this location. So when I've got my VPN and I, you know, I'm using a location in Florida, for example, then I can see uh, information that is limited to the United States. If they're not allowing Puerto Ricans to see it, if I'm using ExpressVPN, then that site doesn't realize I'm in Puerto Rico. It thinks I'm in Florida and I gain access to content that I may otherwise have been uh, denied access to. So visit ExpressVPN slash gold right now. You can arm yourself with an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's Express. E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash gold. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. Also, earlier today, we did get the number for November retail sales, and it was much weaker uh, than analysts had been forecasting. The initial forecast was for a drop of 0.3, and that followed an increase of 0.3 in the prior month. Well, we got a double whammy because the prior month's increase of 0.3 was actually revised to a decrease of 0.1. And instead of getting a drop of 0.3 in November, we got a drop of 1.1. So much weaker than expected. X vehicles, same thing. The prior month's increase of 0.2 was revised to a decline of 0.1. And the expectations for an increase of 0.1 This month, we actually got a decrease of 0.9. And X vehicles and gas, again, same thing. Prior month, originally reported a gain of 0.2, now revised to a loss of 0.1. The consensus was for another gain of 0.2, 
for November. Instead, we have a loss of 0.8. Control group, same thing. Prior month, initially reported up 0.2, revised to flat. Consensus for November up 0.1. Actual number down 0.5. So minus signs across the board. Very weak numbers. Going to get a lot weaker. Obviously, this is the driving force for additional stimulus, even bigger deficits, even more money printing, which is going to put more downward pressure on the U.S. dollar and upward pressure on the price of gold and silver and all equities uh, for that matter, particularly uh, non-U.S. dollar, non-U.S. equities, they are going to get the lion's share of the benefit of the Fed's reckless monetary policy, which now brings me full circle because I want to go back and talk about uh, today's FOMC press conference. You know, one of the things that Powell has changed since becoming a Fed chairman is that there's a press conference every time the Fed meets. We don't just have one once a quarter. Whenever they have a meeting, it's followed up by a press conference. Although now these are virtual, right? The press conferences take place on Zoom. But I want to go over some of the highlights or rather the lowlights of today's press conference. First point I want to make is Powell's statements regarding uh, the Fed's inflation target. So Powell did mention that the Fed was going to be targeting a rate of inflation above 2%. But he said slightly above, really didn't define what slightly was. But clearly, when he says slightly above, he doesn't really mean three or four. Uh, You know, maybe he means two and a quarter, two and a half. Uh, But he said the Fed is going to target that rate so that inflation over time averages 2%. Right, because we were below 2% for many, many years. So now we're going to be slightly above 2%. But the interesting uh, point that he also made was that while the Fed is doing this, the Fed wants to make sure that inflation expectations remain anchored at 2%, meaning that even though the Fed is going to target a rate of inflation that is above 2%, the Fed does not want the markets to expect that the rate of inflation will stay above 2%. The Fed wants the markets to believe that inflation will go back down to 2% after having been above 2% for a while. But the question is, how's that going to happen? Because assuming the Fed is successful and the official inflation rate is above 2%, and in order to get above 2%, it needs to be rising. So if inflation is accelerating and above 2%, Based on what would the markets expect that situation to reverse? Because once the inflation genie is out of the bottle, why would anybody believe the Fed can put it back in? I don't know. I mean, what is the credible policy tool that the Fed has to rein in inflation if expectations start to run away? Nothing. They're not going to raise interest rates. They're not going to shrink the balance sheet. We know that. So the idea that the Fed can both have inflation that is above 2%, yet keep future inflation expectations anchored at 2% is impossible. There's no way the Fed could do both. One of the questions that, that Powell got had to do with house prices. And he was asked, you know, if the Fed is worried about the increase in house prices. 
And Powell's answer was that he's not worried at all, that he doesn't think there's a problem with house prices going up because he thinks it's because of demand. He says, well, demand is there. We have more demand. And so you would expect prices to go up. And I think eventually, you know, prices can come back down. Maybe there's a lot of demand related uh, to relocation uh, from the pandemic. And so in the future, uh, demand will be less robust. And so the prices will uh, level off. And so Powell is not worried because he thinks rising home prices, you know, are just a natural result of increased demand. Yet what Powell doesn't seem to acknowledge or maybe even understand is that the demand is coming from artificially low mortgage rates. You have mortgage rates that are the lowest they've ever been in history, especially if you adjust for inflation, not just current inflation, but for uh, future inflation. So money has never been this cheap or this plentiful, and that money is bidding up home prices. So the demand is coming from the Fed. It's not like the demand is coming from a robust economy. It's not like people have more incomes to buy houses. They don't. It's just easier for people to borrow money to buy houses. So it's the Fed's own monetary policy that is fueling the increase in home prices. It is a bubble. But of course, the Fed has an awful track record when it comes to detecting bubbles in the housing market. In fact, it can't detect bubbles in any market. You know, Powell made a very similar mistake with respect to the uh, budget deficits. In fact, the very final question that Powell was asked related to the sustainability of the fiscal deficits, right? How much money is currently being spent and whether or not we could afford it and whether or not the debts that we are incurring to finance it were sustainable. And Powell's answer was that he didn't see any problem with the level of the debt. And the reason for that was the low real interest rates. He said, because interest rates are so low, all of this debt is affordable and therefore it's not a problem. But again, Powell is still missing the connection between the Fed itself and the low interest rates. The only reason interest rates are so low is because of the Fed. Just like the Fed is supplying the demand in the housing market, and that's why housing prices are up, it is supplying demand in the treasury market. That's why treasury prices are up. That's why interest rates are down. The reason that the rate of interest that the U.S. government is paying is so low is because the Fed is manipulating the market. So for Powell to say he's not worried about the sustainability of the deficits because interest rates are so low, they're only that low because the Fed is worried. It's because the Fed is so worried that they're interfering in the bond market. Powell knows if the Fed wasn't cranking up the printing presses and expanding his balance sheets, interest rates would have already risen, exposing the fact that we have already gone beyond uh, the limits of what's sustainable when it comes to the deficits. So the Fed, in order to sustain the unsustainable, is monetizing all this debt and keeping interest rates low. The question is, can the Fed succeed in doing this indefinitely? And the answer is no, because eventually the dollar has to give way. And in fact, if you look at what's happening right now in the foreign exchange market, The signs are already there that the dollar is about to implode and that the unsustainable uh, chickens, when it comes to the debt, are going to come home to roost. But probably the the scariest statements that Powell made, I mean, not scary for me, but, you know, they should be scary for anybody else, uh, 
was his misunderstanding of inflation and the dynamics that were going on during the 1970s because Powell was asked specifically if he was worried about inflation getting out of hand, right? If, you know, the Fed succeeds and we get inflation above 2%, what's to stop it from from going higher? And in fact, the question also pointed out that if we get a bunch of people uh, and all of a sudden the economy comes back, people get uh, the, the vaccine and now they come rushing back, couldn't that, you know, extra demand lead to increase in prices uh, for goods and services? And Powell acknowledged that it could, but he said that it wouldn't be a problem because it would just be a one-time thing, like prices might adjust upward, you know, right away to a surge in demand and then maybe back off, but that it would not lead to a sustained gain on an annual basis where prices went up every year. And he then brought up the 1970s and talked about the fact that, hey, prices would go up 6% one year, and then they would just go up 6% the next year. And Powell said the reason for that was psychology, right? Because people expected prices to go up, then they were willing to pay higher prices. And it was somehow all a function of expectations and, and, and psychology and a mindset that doesn't exist today. And so that's why we had inflation in the 1970s, was because of the way consumers behaved and because of their expectations. And since they're behaving differently now and they have a different set of expectations, that we don't have to worry. And again, this shows that Powell is completely clueless about what caused the big increase in consumer prices during the 1970s. It had nothing to do with the consumer's psychology or what their expectations were. It had everything to do with the monetary policy of the Fed, particularly the monetary policy of the decade that preceded the 1970s and 1960s, where we ran big budget deficits and the Federal Reserve monetized them. Now, not on the scale they're doing it today, but at the time it was a big deal. And it was that reckless monetary policy that really started in the 60s, but continued into the 70s. That's what fueled the increase in consumer prices. It wasn't the psychology. It was the money. It was the, it was, it was the inflation that the central bank created that was driving up prices. It didn't stop until the Fed changed policy in 1980 under Paul Volcker. And then we started clamping down. That's what changed the dynamic. But of course, the Fed is not only unwilling to do what Volcker did, it's impossible to do what Volcker did, given the amount of debt that we have now that we didn't have when Volcker was Fed chairman. So we're in a position where we can't rein in inflation once it gets out of control. But the fact that Powell doesn't even understand that inflation is a monetary phenomena, that he's he's got his hand at the printing presses and he thinks it comes from psychology, right? expectations and not money creation, you know, we're on the verge of a replay of the 1970s show only in 3D or not even 3D. This is in virtual reality or actual reality, not just on a, on a little screen. Uh, this is going to be a much worse uh, example of stagflation. Again, I've been calling it an inflationary depression because it's not just going to be stagnation. It's going to be depression and it's going to be high inflation. So it's not stagflation, it's an inflationary depression. That's where we're headed. And Powell is completely clueless 
Uh, as, and so is Yellen. And so when the two of them put their heads together in 2021, all these guys are going to do is add fuel to this fire. And in fact, while I'm on the topic of inflation, I wanted to highlight a tweet that I put out thanks to one of my uh, podcast listeners who sent me a photograph of a bill that maybe his father or grandmother, I'm not sure, I forget whose medical bill it was, but it was for a one-week stay in a New York area hospital in 1942. And I wanted to use that bill as both an example of inflation and of how government involvement in healthcare has dramatically increased the cost. Because back in 1942, the government was not really involved in healthcare because the big involvement started in the 1960s, Medicare, Medicaid. That's when the government really took a very, very big role in healthcare. So if you look at this tweet, I reproduced the photograph and the guy or gal, I forget, stayed in a hospital for seven days. And the total bill, and you can see it itemized there for the entire stay in the hospital was $70. So $10 a day for a seven day hospital stay. Now let's put this in perspective because obviously there's been a lot of inflation since 1942. That's part of what I want to discuss. So to, to adjust it for inflation, the easiest way to do it is just to express the bill in ounces of gold because gold was $35 an ounce in 1942. So if you paid $70 for a 10-day hospital stay, you gave the hospital two ounces of gold. Well, how much would two ounces of gold be today? Well, if gold is $1,850, that's $3,700, right? Well, can you spend a week in a hospital in New York for $3,700? Not even close. I mean, you can barely spend a day. I looked it up, but I think the average day in a hospital today is about $4,000. So call it $3,700. So it now costs you $3,700 a day, not for seven days, one day. So it's basically seven times as expensive. So number one, the fact that the dollar has lost 98% of its purchasing power expressed in gold shows you right, how much it now costs, right? Where you used to be able to go to the hospital and stay there for a week and it cost you just $10, right? Now the same stay is going to cost you $3,700 or it would had the U.S. government not driven up the cost of health care to the point where it's not $3,700, it's $25,900 or $26,000. Or, you know, if you want to say it's $4,000 a day, it's $28,000. So basically, because of inflation, right, because of debasement of the dollar, it costs over 50 times as much in nominal terms to go to the doctor, or at least it would had the cost in gold remained the same. But because government policy drove up the price so much, it's actually 400 times as expensive to stay in the hospital for seven days today on a nominal basis 
as it was in 1942. But you know, another good way to look at it is not just in terms of gold, but in terms of weekly income, because this also shows you how much value has been lost in medium income. You know, the government likes to claim that people are earning more money now than they were in the past. They're actually earning less. So I looked up in 1942, the average worker made about $40 per week. So if it costs $70 for a seven-day stay in the hospital, right, that means that the average worker had to work for two weeks or just under two weeks to afford that. Well, today, the average person earns $700 a week. Now, of course, the numbers would actually be worse if I factored in taxes because people earning $700 a week today pay a lot more in taxes than people who are earning $40 a week did in 1942. I mean, Social Security taxes alone, which just, you know, they had just gotten started back then. They were just 1%. Now the payroll tax is 7.5%. Of course, it's 15% if you're self-employed. If you were self-employed in 1942, the payroll tax was zero because the self-employment tax didn't even exist yet. And of course, the income tax brackets were also a lot lower. But forgetting about that, Let's just focus on that $700 number, right? If you're earning $700 a week, based on the the cost today of staying in the hospital, the average worker has to work for 40 weeks to be able to stay in the hospital for seven days, assuming he was paying for it, not with insurance. I'm just relating the cost of a hospital stay to incomes. So relative to weekly incomes, not even factoring in taxes, which are much higher, on a pre-tax basis, the average American today has to work 20 times longer. It takes 40 weeks as opposed to two weeks to afford to go to the hospital for a week. I mean, that is an amazing statistic. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, but Peter, you know, the hospital care is so much better now than it was in 1942. We have much better medicine, so they're going to take better care of you. Uh, You're going to have a better result. And so that's why it's more expensive. It's because it's better. That's not true. That's not what capitalism does. Capitalism makes stuff better and cheaper at the same time. I looked up the cost of an average new car in 1942, and it was $800 for a new car. That is 23 ounces of gold at the then price of $35 an ounce. Well, how much is 23 ounces of gold today? $42,500. What is the average cost of a new car today? $37,000. So in other words, in terms of gold, You can buy a car today, a new car, the average new car, for less money than the average new car cost in 1942. Now, obviously, cars today are much better than the cars that we were making in 1942. I mean, they didn't even have power steering or power brakes or electric uh, windows. You had to crank them up. Uh, They didn't have built-in navigation systems and all kinds of sensors and safety equipment, and they couldn't go nearly as fast. I mean, clearly, cars are much more advanced. They deliver far more value for the money. I mean, nobody would buy a car today if it just came with what was available in 1942. I mean, who would even look at a car like that, right? Uh, So cars today are much, much better than they were, far more complex, right? Yet, 
they are cheaper. The cost has gone down uh, in terms of gold. Now, again, to look at it relative to working though, this again shows you how much our standard of living has declined. Back in 1942, relative to average weekly earnings, the average worker had to work for 20 weeks to afford the average new car. That was in 1942. And of course, people who bought cars in 1942, you know, they didn't take out loans, they, they bought cars, but they had to save up 20 weeks worth of income to have enough money for a brand new car. Today, based on what the average worker earns today and what the cost of the average new car is, today, the average worker has to work for 52 weeks to buy a new car. So more than twice as long. In fact, maybe 150 times more than the worker used to to buy the average new car. So while the price of a car has actually come down in terms of gold, it's actually gone up in terms of labor because American workers are less productive today than they were in 1942. Why? Because we have less economic freedom. We don't have the productivity because we don't have the freedom. We have more government and so workers are less productive. Therefore, they have to work harder and longer in order to buy stuff. And in terms of real money, gold, the price of a car has actually come down. While of course, in terms of paper money, right? I said a new car was 800 paper dollars in 1942 and now it costs 37,000 paper dollars, right? That sounds like a big increase. It's not an increase because in 1942, you can buy a new car and it costs 23 ounces of gold. And today the average new car costs just 20 ounces of gold. So while the price of a new car in Federal Reserve notes has increased more than 46 fold since 1942, the price in real money is actually down by 15%. And I think people are about to experience a similar dynamic when it comes to all sorts of things. You know, when everybody talks about deflation versus inflation, they're missing the point in that we're going to have both. In terms of paper money, we're going to have massive inflation. Everything is going to get more expensive if you're paying for it with Federal Reserve notes. But in terms of real money, gold, just like the car, came down by 15% from 1942 to 2020, you're going to see a similar dynamic. Prices are going to be going down in terms of real money as they're skyrocketing in terms of fiat money.